welcome to The Pemberley Podcast, a podcast where we discuss Jane Austen adaptations, now covering Bridgerton on Netflix. I'm Yolanda Rodriguez. And I'm Julian Davis. We're proud partners of the Frolic Podcast Network, a community made up of your favorite voices in all of Romancelandia and beyond. Keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at The Pemberley, and you can email us at thepemberleypodcast at gmail.com. This episode is brought to you by author Erica Ridley's newest book, The Duke Heist, out now. This Regency romance is perfect for any Bridgerton fans. Visit ericaridley.com for more information, and stay tuned to the end of this episode for a message from Erica and a sample of the audiobook. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Pemberley Podcast. Let's just dive straight into episode 7 of Bridgerton. Previously, Simon and Daphne were living in passionate wedded bliss until Daphne discovers Simon can have children and she feels deceived. Meanwhile, Colin Bridgerton and Marina Thompson's very short engagement may be over after Lady Whistledown reveals she's been pregnant since her arrival. We are now seeing the aftermath of these two big events that happened in episode six. One of what happened between Simon and Daphne and obviously what's going on between Colin and Marina. This episode is aptly titled Oceans Apart because (laughs) no one is talking to each other. And diving into that, we can start with Daphne and Simon and then we'll dive into the other characters in the show. But the previously happy couple are no longer happy. They have like this really fun um, piano battle where like Daphne is playing as loud as she can and Simon is trying to be outside and concentrate on shooting birds. Daphne's just feeling with these feelings of like she feels deceived and Simon is angry. They have to talk to each other though because it, Daphne reads the latest whistle down. She sees the scandal that unfortunately her brother Colin is going through and it's like, I have to go home. I have to help with this somehow. And for a second, she, it seems like she doesn't want Simon to come along, but you know, he's not going to tolerate separate households. He's not going to be like, I'm not part of your family still. Like I'm still part of your life and your family. I mean, from the get go, they've needed this, but I would very much like both of these characters to attend therapy with a capital T. It's interesting because I would think that Simon would love to get some space from Daphne right now, but he has sort of adopted this philosophy that he is not going to let her out of his sight until she knows whether or not she's pregnant. That's kind of another precarious situation. I mean, we we talked a lot about the sort of scene, the room where it happened in the last episode. Now we're kind of dealing with the effects of she could be pregnant. Simon sort of doesn't know how to feel about that, but it's nice that he still considers the Bridgertons part of his family because because he wants to come with. Daphne does not want him to come with. She wants her space. But we we go into town, we go into London, and we arrive very late at night. And Daphne's there to just sort of do what she can with her newfound wifely wisdom. They are a bit having to play the part of a happy couple in front of everyone, in front of the Bridgertons, in front of society at large, because everyone saw them as this perfect match and perfect couple. So Simon more easily actually is able to play that part as we kind of see at the uh, Queen's luncheon later, which is like this big event. I have a hundred guineas wagered on there being a Hastings heir within the year. Are you yet with child? We have certainly been devoting our energies to the endeavor, Your Majesty. We should hope to see our Queen soon satisfied. See to it that you do. 
Daphne's like, excuse me? Like, where? <laughs> Where's this coming Where's from? This coming? Where's, where is this charming father figure? I'd like to be married to him. Can I talk to him <laughs> yeah. a little longer? <laughs> I think, I mean, it shows just how much, like, Simon is able to put on this front and be, like, this charming person. And then actually in the reality of their marriage, like, they're having, like, all these difficulties and can't even talk to each other. And then she pulls her mother aside and then basically berates her. I think she kind of deserves this because Violet clearly sheltered Daphne. And she's like, you did not do me any favors by sheltering me from like marital relations and like my responsibilities. And like we've seen in a lot of adaptations that like in order for a young lady to become a wife, you learn things like sewing and drawing and pianoforte and like these sort of little artistic things to entertain people. And that is so different from like being the head of a household, like the CEO of your own company that people are dependent on you. If your motherly advice had actually prepared me to wed. Whatever do you mean? I mean, Mama, that you sent me out into the world no better than a fool. You taught me how to play pretend, but nothing of the realities of married life i think like in violet's mind she's always been preparing her to be out in society and for courtship but she's never really prepared her for beyond that point so she's made her become a very accomplished lady of course of like do you have all these wonderful skills that make you appealing to a potential match after that you're on your own really it kind of reminds me of this one episode from season one of The Crown that I've never forgotten, where the young Queen Elizabeth learns that she had like no education at all. And she feels really resentful about it, that she sort of doesn't know what anyone's talking about. She feels constantly outmaneuvered. And she like yelled at her mom, like, why didn't you educate me? And she's like, we educated you to be a lady. Like we did prepare you for this. You got all the education you need. She truly like doesn't think that she did her daughter a disservice by being real with her about how she would be treated and like what would be expected of her and I feel like that's what Daphne's going through right now is she's realizing just how naive she's been her whole life and like her expectations for what a marriage should be were completely off base you know like I don't think it's weird to want romance and and you know marrying your best friend kind of thing but she had like no idea the work that goes into it and talking about that you look at the status of the Bridgertons in society like they're clearly like at the top so Really, any match that Daphne would get is either the same or higher than that. So in Violet's mind, she's like, well, she's going to be set for life because she's already, if you have the fallback of Bridgertons, then you're good for life. But now even more so with a, with a duke in your life, at one point she was courting a prince too. That would have been even better. But she is sort of like in this very privileged position of you don't need to worry about all the stresses of the world because everything is going to be taken care of for you. But now when she's actually faced with the reality of her marriage and all the difficulties that Daphne is going through, yeah, she feels a little resentful toward her mother. And that's where Lady Danbury unfortunately sees the outburst that they're having in this garden, which anyone could have walked by. Thankfully, it was Lady Danbury. She's not someone who's going to go around and spilling the Bridgerton secrets. So, Well, no, I mean, she's also Simon's wife. And, and I think that it sort of hurts her to hear because this is the couple that married for love. I mean, yeah. they wanted this for they wanted each other and I think it's like really hard I mean I, I would have loved to have heard Violet's explanation as to like why she sheltered her daughter but like yeah. Lady Danbury interrupts that I think she feels like she sort of considers Daphne like a daughter now 
which actually I think is a great segue into like the next section, which is Lady Danbury approaches her and Simon and is like, hello, Mrs. Duke of Hastings. I would like to invite you and only you to a very special event at my house for other married ladies. I actually really, really love this scene because I think we expected like haughtiness and we expected like a lot of gossip, having tea, doing very proper things. And instead it's like a night of debauchery where Lady Danbury has set up gambling tables and they're like drinking hard liquor and they're smoking and they're just sort of like trash talking their husbands. (laughs) And Daphne's like, this is not a bad life. Before that, I've skipped a step. The Duke and Daphne have a very passionate moment on the stairs. And she's like, do we want to take this into the bedroom? And he's like, actually, no. Here are my new rules. In my opinion, this comes a little out of nowhere, considering a few hours earlier, he was saying that he was not going to let her out of his sight Mm -hmm. until he knew whether or not she was pregnant. He's like, if you're pregnant, I'll do right by you and your child. Our child, yeah. But if you're not with child, you've demonstrated that I cannot trust you and we will be married in name only. We're going to be separated. That was very heartbreaking for Daphne to hear. I mean, they're both mad at each other, but they will still love each other. And I think that when she got to go to Lady Danbury's night, she like heard real women that she admires talking about how, yeah, they don't live with their husbands. That's like a a marriage in name only, but like it's Mm -hmm. great because they have all the benefits of like being the head of a household and and being a lady. They have so much freedom because it's not like their husbands are actually telling them what they can and cannot do because they don't care. That's uh, where she meets Kitty Langham, who's the wife to a general. Uh, She becomes significant, which we'll talk about later. But actually, we kind of see two examples of marriage arrangements in this episode that are like under the radar for people. Daphne and Simon are seen as this perfect love match where everyone else is sort of like, we married because that's what you do. Kitty Langham's like, I don't see my husband. He has his household, like I have mine and like we're fine with it. That's our arrangement. And it sort of baffles Daphne, but Lady Danbury's there like, Kitty, you forget that she's in honeymoon phase right now. She's in wedded bliss still. She doesn't know anything that's like to come really, but little do they know. Daphne is facing her own troubles, but has to maintain this front of we have this perfect love match marriage. I think it's a very enlightening night for Daphne because I think that when Simon laid out this ultimatum, she was like, crap, I can't imagine a life without him. Like, I I got married for him. It's because I wanted him and now he's taking him out of the equation. There's a world where she could be happy being married but living as unmarried and she could have, like, there are certain freedoms that she could have. I think another interesting thing about this married women's night where they're, they're able to speak freely and finally, like, be out in the open with all their secrets really is that you kind of then directly see the contrast of the men at the gentleman's club where it's like even before they're married they have access to this kind of freedom and they're always like just talking about things and drinking and you know different for them women now come in and and they have the literally a bookshelf that is a secret passageway so that women can be brought into the gentleman's lounge which is awful just shows like the difference in how they're all treated of like oh men are always open to these things 
things and they always have knowledge of these things and then they have the freedom to do this. But women, it's like only within the confines of marriage are they now finally able to speak freely to each other. Where before, they only have like their very properties and like in hushed tones, they gossip about things. It's almost like to Daphne, like, if only I had known this and if only if I, if I had been privy to all this knowledge before getting married, it would have at least enlightened her decision more of what are the possibilities and knowing more about what does marriage entail, she would be able to make a more informed decision about what it means too. Maybe, you know, that's partially the reason why Anthony is uh, worried about his brother Colin too. He's like, he's like rushing into this decision when he doesn't know what it entails. He hasn't been to the gentleman's club yet. So in some way, whatever, Anthony is trying to protect his brother. I completely disagree with everything that Anthony Bridgerton does or says. Yeah. <laughs> However, I will say like, I do get where he's coming from. And I think that especially as an oldest son, he does have the most pressure put on him to have a successful household, a successful everything. I, I do think that he takes his responsive, I mean, a bit late in the game, but he does take yes. his responsibilities as an older brother, as a Viscount, as the sort of head of household seriously. Part of that is making sure that his siblings marry the best person. I mean, I think all the Bridgerton kids are a bit spoiled because their parents were absolutely crazy for each other. So they've all kind of gotten in their heads. They should have these love marriages. It's a lot of pressure because it's not often that you meet someone that you have that connection with because I think Anthony has really screwed himself over in the love department. It's almost like he doesn't really believe in true love because I, I do think that he really loves Sienna. I mean, like he has like this avoidant attachment style where like yeah. it's just really hard for him. And so that's why he's so hard on Colin and he can't fathom that he actually loves Marina because he doesn't like believe in love. He doesn't think you, like, you can have love and maintain your status and still fulfill your responsibilities and all these things, but that's his issue that we'll get to also later. But at this gentleman's club, Simon is there. He sees Anthony and Anthony can tell, at least from something Daphne said earlier, like something is wrong between them and their marriage. Simon doesn't feel like he can actually talk to Anthony about his marriage problems to his sister. So <laughs> he doesn't really, again, have that confidant in Anthony. Mondrich, sure, he detected like something's going on with your marriage. Uh, you're not happy. But also Mondrich is like, welcome to married life. Like, <laughs> <laughs> this is what it is. So yep. Anthony and seeing that something's wrong with their marriage, like tries to talk to Simon about it because they were friends at one point. They used to get along and they would be open with each other, but it's just a different dynamic now. This is where some hurtful words are said to one another. What is most unfortunate is the fact that your father was so absent. He never gave you a proper example of how to lead a household. You cannot manage it, can you? Hey, your responsibility. You, fulfilling the promise that every firstborn son makes to his father before he dies. Do you think he's looking down on you now? Ashamed. They really get into this big fight in this gentleman's club. They are breaking tables. They are breaking glasses. It's like, it's dramatic. And it really triggered something specific about their own insecurities within what they're going through. They just needed to like take this out on someone. Uh, for Simon, it just happened to be Anthony. For Anthony, it just happened to be Simon. But also it's like that unresolved conflict of the duel too. <laughs> like they were literally about to kill each other. And so... <laughs> I was just thinking about that, about like how volatile the relations are between Team Bridgerton and Simon. Yeah. Like I, I feel like he's either like best friends with Anthony or he's in happy wedded <laughs> marital bliss with Daphne 
or he's trying to kill Anthony and vice versa, or he's like telling Daphne, like, I just want you to know that like this marriage is pretty much over and I don't want to speak to you ever again. So hope you're okay with that. Isn't, and that's why I'm just like, yeah, therapy, you know, like let's, let's really, cause um, you know, there is a, a moment between Simon and Daphne where he does open up to her and then they have a conversation where she's like, can we talk about the fact that you lied to me about not being able to have children? And that's where he sort of clarifies, like I meant emotionally, I couldn't have them because I swore to my father on his deathbed, the dukedom would die with me. Daphne is like not understanding about this. She's pretty mad about it. She's like, so you're telling me that you are living your life that uh, revolves around getting revenge against a man who is dead. He's not going to be able to see you taking out your revenge. He can only look down on you and see it happen. Like, that's what you're telling me. And he's like, yeah but I swore on his deathbed. She is comparing vows because he says, I made a vow to him that I would never do this. And she's like, but you made a vow to me. (laughs) What about that one? Before God and all of our family and friends. Yeah, so she is seeing like, you're valuing this revengeful vow over like what should be like this really amazing and and love vow that should supersede that in her mind because Daphne is of this mind of like, but love conquers all and we should be able to move forward in life. Simon isn't ready to believe that just yet. You know, he still wants to hold on to that part of his identity where he's like, no, like I need to fulfill this because my father was so awful. Well, I don't think Simon is crazy for being so hurt and emotionally traumatized. I like Simon. I want the best for him. I don't want him to live his life based on making his father angry. I think Daphne is a little bit like, not a little bit. I think she's definitely making him feel guilty about this. That's why... I think they need therapy and the therapist needs to be like, what do you want outside of your father and how he raised you? You know, like who is Simon? He does need that personal breakthrough of like shattering that belief that he really needs to hold on to this vow that is only out of revenge and move past it to be able to be like, okay, you had Lady Danbury in your life. You do have positive people in your life who, despite the fact that this man was such a negative presence in your life, you need to learn how to move on from him and let it go because you have Lady Danbury. You have Daphne in your life. You now have this whole Bridgerton family in your life. You're not alone anymore. And I think he still feels like he's like this scrappy kid who's just barely trying to hang on and barely trying to make it. And, you know, that insecurity of his stammer is still kind of in the back of his mind of like, at any point I could I could be that stammering kid who's worthless. But he's not. He's earned his place in society and he is seen as, you know, this incredible match for Daphne. So he should really be able to own that. But he hasn't been able to own his own power because so much of it he feels like was stolen from his father. And I think it is him trying to regain it by like sticking it to his father. But he should be able to regain his power without doing that. I mean, he just clings so dearly to this hatred of his father. He loves- It's the one consistent thing in his life. It's the devil he knows. It's it's familiar to him. You know, his hatred of his father gave him incredible drive to overcome his stammer, to do well in school. Yeah. Like he is smart. He's accomplished. He's well-traveled. And that came- 
from trying to stick it to his father. That's true. And he doesn't know who he is outside of this vendetta and outside of this hurt and outside of this anger. And that's just something that Daphne can't see. I mean, Simon can't see it either. He's just like, this is important to me. This is the most important thing to me. I want to see him move past this. I think he can move past this. I just think he doesn't know what a mental block this is in his own head. Daphne's like seeing it, but she's not understanding it because I get where she's coming from too. She's like, so you love hating your father more than you love me. Think about what I want and what I need. And because he is pushing her away the same way that his father pushed him away when he like didn't understand the situation. The ultimatum that uh, Simon has laid out here is either we're going to be like a miserable family if you're pregnant or we're going to separate if you're not. And there's just a lot writing on that. Let's pause here because we'll wrap up Daphne and the Duke story at the end of this episode. Back to Colin and Marina's scandal. You know, it's out that she's pregnant and she tried to trick him into marrying her. Daphne acts as chaperone to them having a conversation about it. And Marina owns up to it. I did not know better. You may think me a villain, but I did what I thought I must. If you had simply come to me and told me of your situation, I would have married you without a second thought. That is how in love I believe myself to be. And Daphne also feels really bad for her because I like Marina's her total opposite. She is pregnant with a man who she is not married to and she loved, but she's like been abandoned. And I think Daphne feels really bad for her and she decides to help her basically. This is exactly, I think, what Anthony was trying to protect him from and in the wrong way. He was like, you just needed to like get introduced to other girls first and like not the best way, Anthony, not the healthy way. Colin is now dealing with the aftermath of his heartbreak. So things are over between them. And I do think it's great that Daphne does step in to be like, okay, that was rough (laughs) to watch. That's where she does remember like, oh, I think I know this acquaintance who will know a general who maybe can get in touch with this Sir George that you're so in love with. And Marina still doesn't have hope because she's like, but he never answered any of my letters. At the married ladies gambling night is where she meets Kitty Langham. She tells her, okay, like I'll write to your husband, the general, try to find any information about this boy, which she does. She sends the letter. Marina has like no faith that it's actually going to lead to anything because she's like, so the Duke also signed it? And she's like, no, he didn't sign it. And Marina's like, what's the point? What's going to happen? It's so sad. But another thing that I wanted to plug in here is that Daphne is the one who really gives this passionate speech about like, it's not Marina's fault that she's pregnant. Her lover, George, got her pregnant and he is answering for 0% of this. He is not being punished in any way. All of the burdens and all of the consequences for this pregnancy is falling on Marina and it's not fair. And so she's like trying to get justice for Marina. I'm curious to know if she will. Like, that was really sad when Marina's like, your word it means nothing unless a man signs your letter. And Daphne's like, how dare you? I'm a duchess. We'll see if this works. I'm very curious to see if this works. You know, that's their own little side campaign. And kind of staying with the call and track, actually, um, Anthony actually does apologize to Colin. Um, and he tries to give him love advice. It's not great love advice because Anthony doesn't know anything about love. Even yep. even Colin's like, who 
hurt you, brother. <laughs> like, <laughs> what's going on with your life? Because even Colin is, even though he is younger, he's wise enough to know, like, that's not how things work. And clearly, you know, Anthony being head of household has his own responsibilities that he can't handle. And so he doesn't know how to navigate love. I do think it's sweet that Daphne has come into town to check in on her younger brother. That's where she's kind of like, well, at least you knew her secrets before you got married. And he's like, what's going on with you? (laughs) Like, something's going on. Like, Colin's just, like, dealing left and right with everyone's secret feelings about what they actually feel. And so Daphne uh, is there to help out wherever she can. We don't see the result of the letter in this episode, but back to Marina. I mean, she kind of feels hopeless at this point. She's like, well, that letter's not going to result in anything because the Duke didn't sign it. Lady Featherington tries to, like, since the marriage is off, she's like, okay, we need to take you to, like, a women's home. Yeah. And they won't take her because Lady Featherington, I mean, the Featheringtons are broke, but Lady Featherington's, like, trying to hide this, and she conceals it very well because this is, like, a charity organization, and she's like, I'd like to drop off this young woman. We'll take her, but only if you make a sizable donation. Marita feels like this huge burden, like, never before. Yeah. And one of the things about Lady Featherington, too, is, like, She is trying to distance herself now from Marina. And actually, when they go to the Queen's luncheon, she sees Violet and is like, I can't believe we were both deceived, right, by Marina. This, like, young girl, how dare she? Violet cannot stand a single word from her and, like, walks away. Yes, they did have an invitation originally. That was before that day's issue of Whistledown came out. So even, like, other women are looking at, like, the audacity. Like, how dare she even show her face here? That's when they're approached by uh, someone from the Queen's staff and they're like, uh, you need to leave actually you are uninvited which is just just very awkward even though penelope and eloise get to see each other for a second it's not for long because they are now escorted out of the queen's luncheon so featheringtons are having a rough time overall like how is this now going to affect the rest of her daughters who really she hasn't been paying any attention to marina takes some drastic actions she doesn't say it but we kind of see her trying to terminate this pregnancy she goes down to the kitchen mixes some teas together i gotta say it was pretty delicious looking tea (laughs) but i kept thinking the whole time like anything that's like strong enough to like terminate your pregnancy has has got to just be so horrible for you the next thing we know penelope has discovered her unconscious in her room yeah and it looks like she's alive because she was like moving she was gripping penelope's hand but we really don't know the fate of her baby there was actually a women's health magazine article that talks about the historical significance of this and like how in those times, this was actually done. Like some women would try to use this method to try to terminate their pregnancy. And it was mixing a bunch of different herbs. So the real life effects could be like, yes, it, if it had been more lethal, it could do something to either hinder Marina's own health. Sure, it could do something to the pregnancy, but it could also do something to the baby. So she's doing some risky things here because I think it is in an act of desperation that Marina feels like she has nothing else to do. And she feels like, I have this issue and and she's trying to take care of it, but it's only because Lady Featherington has not offered her any support in any way. She's felt no support from the Bridgertons either. She feels totally isolated. Society was built to basically take the most like vulnerable people like unmarried pregnant women 
and like really keep them at the bottom because she can't get married to anyone because she's seen as like tainted. That's what's interesting is like in the last episode when she was talking to Colin and she's like, I feel like no one's ever really wanted me but you. That wasn't an act. That was really her like reaching deep down, pulling out like her heart and being like, this is really how I feel and that's why we should get married soon. So that's pretty much the drama ending on Marina's storyline for this episode. Eloise is actually making headway in the Lady Whistledown uh, investigation. The queen summons her at her luncheon and she's like, who is she? And she's like, so I don't know, but I'm close. And she's like, don't waste my time. Penelope, Penelope's, the two girls have a conversation because it sounds like now that the sort of drama with Colin has blown over, Penelope is open to assisting in the Lady Whistledown investigation. Eloise is now like, okay, I feel like it has narrowed down considerably now that Whistledown has reported Marina's pregnancy. So who knew? Penelope's like, wow. I mean, like everyone knew, like everyone in my family knew, all of the servants knew. And so it must've been a servant. And then Eloise is like, actually, we've already ruled out servant, but it was probably a tradesperson. The second I heard her say that, I was like, no, the queen doesn't care about your theories. The queen wants a name, you know? No. Um, Poor Eloise. She's doing the best she can with limited information, but she keeps having like these broad like roles in society of who it could be. So she previously thought a widow. She thought a servant. Now she's on tradesperson. Sure, she's accused like a couple of people directly. And I think that's where the queen was intrigued when she saw her publicly <laughs> accuse Lady Danbury of being Lady Whistledown. So what the queen is expecting is now another name. But when she presents tradesperson to the queen, the queen's like, that's the best you have. And it's like, yes, this child, that's the best she has. <laughs> Just got her hems lowered. Yeah. Well, so this is where it gets really interesting. So Eloise is now making her way into society. She's lowered her hems. She's worn her hair up, which is customary at the time. The reason now, Eloise now has a different motivation for discovering Lady Whistledown because Lady Whistledown has destroyed the Featherington name. And she's like, anyone who has the power to tear it down has the power to restore it. So she's trying to be a good friend and she wants to uncover Lady Whistledown so that she can restore the Featherington's good name. Queen is like, literally screw your theory. I've hired a team of Bow Street runners to do a proper investigation. They will unmask Whistledown and she should be made to pay for her impertinence. That noxious gossip rag will finally cease to exist. You want to silence her? There is still good she must do. Child, go. Now Eloise is kind of on this hunt to beat a team of professional investigators so that she can discover the identity of Lady Whistledown to get her to fix the Featheringtons before the queen shuts her down. Right, because the queen's motivation is that, like, in maybe the previous days, Whistledown, her luncheon was not even mentioned as anything of note. So she's like, how dare this Whistledown woman not even mention my luncheon? And that also speaks to something the Modiste Genevieve said, which is like, Whistledown's word is as good as gospel. Like, anything she writes, like, people take. Whether it's false, whether it's true, like, people know it, like, people assume it to be true. And the luncheon was in there, they'd be like, oh, like, I wasn't invited to the luncheon. That was, like, the big event of the season. But no, not even a mention of the luncheon. So the queen wants to take her down for that reason. She just doesn't like the fact that this woman has more power than she does. Like, she's ears to the ground. 
everything she says has been correct, she can take down anyone and no one should have that power except the queen. Yeah, because like she was the one who did name Daphne the diamond of the season. So the idea that next season this Whistledown could have more power than her is not something that's agreeable to her. So she's like, I gotta take her down now before she continues to have any more influence over me. A lot of different storylines happening in this episode, but just to jump to Benedict for a second. Previously, we've seen Benedict. He's gone to like these underground art parties uh, held by Henry Granville and that's where he saw Henry with another man and that was something very new to Benedict and it seemed like he was cool with it and he didn't really want to know anything else Um, but they're at a party now Henry's like would you like to meet my friend Uh, (laughs) the man who he was with and Benedict is suddenly like no no thank you I don't want to meet him I'm fine with that then at the concert Actually, Benedict takes Henry aside in his, and he's like, so what's the deal with your marriage? And that's where Henry tells him, I'm in love with Lord Weatherby. This just happens to be our arrangement. My wife is very well aware of it. Henry is married for the sake of that front in front of society. We live on a constant threat of danger, Bridgerton. I risk my life every day for love. You have no idea what it is like to be in a room with someone you cannot live without. And yet still feel as though you are oceans apart. But I do think it's interesting that Benedict is asking about it. To me, it feels like, oh, is he curious about this? Is he wanting to know more because he is also questioning like his own sexuality? But the show doesn't really go there (laughs) in any way. And this is where there were some critiques of the show uh, potentially queer baiting. Because I think, you know, when we're talking about comparing the trailer of the show to the actual show, the trailer, of course, shows all the big highlights of what we're going to see and what it's going to cover. One of those is like, I think we got that quick snippet of like, oh, there is like this queer relationship that's happening. But it's only like that one time, that one time we see it is the only time we see it. Maybe some people thought this show was actually going to set up more representation within that space than it did. And it's really only confined to like this one character, this one scene. Benedict in himself, sure he asks about it, but he isn't actually asking about it with any real curiosity. Like maybe it could have been explored because as we see with the books, each book is going to follow a different Bridgerton, their journey to marriage. That's what Benedict will eventually get to. It seems like they're not going to explore that for that reason. I think it's potentially somewhere where the show creator could go off book, you could say, and create a new storyline for Benedict. But it seems like uh, he's they're not going to go there or who knows. I mean, the other thing that I want to say about like queer culture at the time is that, you know, assuming they're kind of operating in the same rules and regulations of like real Regency England, homosexuality was illegal Mm. until like the 1950s or 60s and like after world war ii is when it was like not declared a crime i guess i just want to like reiterate the fact that like the stakes of this relationship are very very high not just that like a scandal could be caused but it's as illegal as like anthony and simon's duel like they could go to jail he could go to jail for it i guess it's interesting then like how they do treat race as this sort of like fantasy of like we've moved past racism we're all equal and we're all clearly like interracial marriages can happen and that's not illegal because of the queen and the king but within this fantasy world then we're saying like 
But no, queer relationships are still a risk and they're still illegal. The reason I want to say like, if this world is the same as like real life England because right. of like the decisions that they made about like how to treat race in the show, I have no idea. They don't talk about whether or not it's just a scandal because he's cheating on his wife or if because like homosexuality is this huge thing that like no one thinks is real or like they think it's bad kind of thing. So we don't really know. I mean, Henry does talk about it a little bit. He's like, it is a risk. Every day is a risk. If he's ever spotted with Lord Weatherby, their lives are at risk. So I think you do understand the stakes of it. But in creating like this inclusive environment, it's interesting that the show chose to not also include that part of things. Who knows? I think it's something that could be explored in the future. But at least within this season, it kind of starts and ends with just Henry's storyline. While he ponders his own sexuality, um, we can wrap up the Duke and Daphne storyline, which the big cliffhanger is, is Daphne pregnant or not? When she's at the opera with Simon, something is clearly wrong. She runs out of the room and she's basically gotten her period. She's bleeding. That Okay, that raised another very interesting question for me, which is like, what were women doing on their periods for centuries? Because I feel like it was just like the 20th century that we got the present sanitary situations that we have. And like, I feel like I've heard things like women used to like put a cloth down there and just kind of like pin it to the insides of their skirts. Honestly, the fact that she was bleeding and it wasn't like through her dress shocked me. (laughs) And so her mom comes in and Daphne didn't really get to fully explain the situation to her. She got properly yelled at earlier in the episode. And so she knows that the fact that she's gotten her period is like very serious. Yeah, I think I'm I'm not sure what they may have used at the time, but it was like a cloth or a rag. That's where the saying of like, on the rag comes from. But, you know, it's very significant to Daphne because now getting her period, this means two things to her. It means, one, that her marriage is essentially over because this is where Simon had told her, once you find out uh, you, you're not pregnant, then we're living our separate lives. And it also means to her that she'll never be a mother because if they're not going to be together and she's stu- and she's essentially stuck in this marriage for life, it'll never happen. So she has to now, she's now feeling like she's dealing with the reality of those two things of her marriage being over. She's never having children and she's not sure where to, where things go from here. She's mourning her whole life. The whole reason she married Simon was for Simon and he doesn't want her anymore. Or at least he says he doesn't want her anymore. Yeah. Her life is basically over. So <laughs> congrats, Daphne. Hope it was worth it. I know. <laughs> Simon did um, almost die at the duel. So he risked yeah. his life to He pre- actually risked life and limb to protect her and her reputation. Yeah. So lie in the bed that you've made, Daphne. <laughs> so we want to wrap up the episode with an epiphany that Eloise has. So Benedict, while he's sort of like tiptoeing on what his sexuality may or may not be, he does sort of come to the conclusion that he doesn't want to like live his life for other people. So he decides that he wants to date the modiste. So he and Eloise pick her up for the date and she's trying to make awkward small talk with (laughs) Eloise. I think Eloise is like a terrible conversationalist. Talking to the modiste, she kind of pieces together. The closest we've come to knowing who Whistledown is is related to Marina's pregnancy. When Eloise really thinks back as to like who was present for every event that Lady Whistledown reported on, 
Penelope was there for every single episode. She was kind of weird about wanting to discover Lady Whistledown's identity when she first brought it up. And she was pretty upset the night before her family got ruined. I think it's just so funny to see Benedict and Genevieve watching Eloise process this because suddenly <laughs> she becomes very silent. Obviously, you're watching the scene and like the music swells and that music fills up the scene. But imagine just being in that carriage ride and Eloise suddenly is like quiet <laughs> and they're like, You good? Are you okay? Um, so the, I'm sure the rest of their carriage ride was awkward, but Eloise, the wheels are turning in her mind of now who could it be? So she seems to be on the right track again. <laughs> I mean, signs at this particular moment point to Penelope. Yeah, so. there's really no uh, no one else, right? Because we've kind of rolled out all the other possibilities at this point. I think, geez. Well, did- we've entertained some possibilities. I mean, you and I have like known who this per- who Lady Whistledown is right. from the beginning. It's more a question of like, is this the kind of show that's going to go the straightforward way? Or is there going to be some kind of twist where we're like, aha, you'd think that it's Penelope, but it was actually this person. I just, I sort of don't know. There's been so many twists in this show that I just sort of don't know if this is the kind of show that's going to pull something like that. I know we talked about how the boys wouldn't be good candidates, but Benedict is someone who is at all these events. But I mean, he doesn't need the money. You're not going to get someone who is that high up in society to really spend their time doing something like this. I don't think Lady Whistledown is doing this for the money. Yeah. I think she's... We don't really know what her motivation is, like, because we don't know who Lady Whistledown is. Yeah, because I think what we get in the book is that, like, the Whistledown paper suddenly ar- arrives on everyone's doorstep one day for free. And everyone, mm-hmm. like, after a week gets super attached to it and they're, like, wanting to know more. Then the next week when the, all the servants are like, okay, hand over the Whistledown, they're like, hand over this amount of money <laughs> and they're like five what? and they said it was like five pence yeah. which is like way more it's like more expensive than your average gossip paper. yeah but so like because she's always right and because she names people it's worth the cash yeah so she was really clever gave everyone a free trial and then got yeah. everyone <laughs> attached to it everyone's paying for it and if you don't have whistle down like oh my goodness you're out of the loop Eloise seems to be narrowing in on Whistledown, so we'll see. And and we do know that that Whistledown will be revealed in the next episode, so uh, we'll see if she's on the right track. But if you have any thoughts on the show or the next episode, feel free to email us at thepemberleypodcast at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media at thepemberley. Be sure to stay tuned for the next episode, but now... Here's Erica Ridley with a preview of her new book, The Duke Heist. Hi, the Pemberley Podcast listeners. This is Erica Ridley, author of the Wild Winchester series. I'm so excited to be sharing an excerpt of The Duke Heist with you today. This uniquely talented family of caper-committing siblings don't let laws stop them from righting wrongs, which means Chloe Winchester certainly isn't going to let a duke get in her way, or into her bed, or into her heart. Oops. Chapter 1. March 1817. London, England. Miss Chloe Winchester burst through the door of her family's sprawling residence in semi-fashionable Islington, followed closely behind by her sister Thomasina. Chloe's pulse raced with excitement. His arrogance, the Duke of Frosty Disapproval, didn't have a chance. Unable to keep her exuberance to herself, she yelled out, I have news about the painting. 
In a more respectable household, a young lady might expect censure for being so vulgar as to shout, even within the confines of one's own home. Such a young lady might also be rebuked for donning trousers and strolling about Westminster under an assumed identity. Chloe was grateful every single day not to have such limitations. Her roguish brother Graham appeared at the top of the marble stairs, delight and disbelief writ across his handsome face. He was used to being the one with shocking news to share. Don't stand about. Come up to the planning parlour at once. I'll ring for tea. Exchanging grins, Chloe and Tommy dashed up the marble stairs, their grey cotton trousers allowing them to take the steps two at a time. In seconds, they joined Graham in the planning parlour, the communal private sitting room the six siblings used for plotting their stratagems. Chloe and Tommy tossed their matching beaver hats onto the long walnut and burl table in the centre of the sound-dampened room. Tommy rubbed a hand over her short brown hair, causing it to spring up at all angles. Graham moved a pile of scandal sheets from the table to the map case to make room for refreshments. Tommy and Graham launched themselves into their favourite needlepoint armchairs between two large windows outfitted with heavy calico curtains of ruby and gold. Chloe was far too excited to sit. Instead, she paced the black slate floor, which still contained traces of chalk from the last planning session. She paused before the unlit fireplace and lifted her chin. For as long as she could remember, two paintings had always hung above the white marble mantel. One of them had been missing for the last eight months. But it wouldn't remain missing for much longer. The planning parlour feels doubly empty without our puck, Graham said gruffly. Not just the parlour, Tommy corrected. Our entire house. Our lives. No one said the words out loud, but they all knew it to be true. The house had belonged to Baron Vanderbeen, but the beloved painting belonged to all of them. Bean had rescued his motley brood of orphans over the course of a single summer. Six proud, frightened children between the ages of eight and eleven. Chloe, Tommy, Graham, Jacob, Marjorie and Elizabeth. Life had taught them to be mistrustful and careful. Coming together as a family had been the most pivotal moment in their lives. Chloe lifted her gaze to the portrait above the left side of the mantel. Bean's fatherly visage bore a grin that crinkled the edges of his bright blue eyes. It was not at all the thing to smile in one's portrait, which was probably why Bean had done so. Chloe was glad he did. His smile always made her feel loved. A maid entered the room and began arranging the tea. Chloe tugged her cravat free so as not to fill it with crumbs. Tommy wiggled with excitement. I can't wait to hear your plan, Chloe. Once Puck comes home, it will feel like having a part of being back, like being whole again. Chloe's heart pounded in agreement. All six of the siblings would do anything in their power to bring Puck and family home, where it belonged. Before they'd found each other, most of the siblings had never had anyone they could rely on or possessions to call their own. 
They'd learned the hard way not to develop emotional attachments to people or things. Bean had offered permanence, a place to belong, a home. He told them they were the children he'd always wanted but never had. From the moment each had arrived on the doorstep, they'd felt loved and cherished in a way they had never known. The oil painting was their first purchase as a family, their first decision as a family. For most of them, it was the first time their voices mattered. The artist's uncommon skill wasn't why they'd chosen the unusual painting. It was the subject. A forest scene featuring Robin Goodfellow, the mischievous demon fairy, sometimes known in folktales as Puck, and six fellow sprites of all sizes and hues dancing about a fire with absolute freedom and joy. It was the visual representation of what they'd found in each other. Happiness, unconditional love, the ability to be oneself and to be bigger than oneself, to be a team and a family. That was the most magical part of all. That painting was their soul on canvas. To the Winchesters, the painting was a family portrait, and their most cherished possession. It belonged to all of them. It was all of them. Once Puck comes home, we can get rid of that cherub. All three gazes swung to the fireplace. An angel-shaped vase stood on the mantel, right beneath the faded rectangle where Puck and family should have been. A blank spot that matched the empty space in their lives where Bean used to be. Chloe swallowed hard at the injustice. Nineteen years earlier, the prior, Duke of Faircliffe, had sold them the painting to pay one of his many gaming debts. Then, eight months ago, when he suddenly wanted it back, the family refused. Instead of honouring the original transaction, the Duke stole the painting and left an ugly vase behind in its stead, as though that could possibly make up for their loss. Neither they nor the old Duke anticipated a carriage accident interrupting his journey home, or that he'd succumb to his injuries. When Bean visited the heir to politely request the return of their painting, the newly crowned Duke of Faircliffe refused to see him. Rebuff, Baron Vanderbeen. Chloe's blood boiled. But that was hardly the first of the new Duke's endless slights and rejections. He'd always been too lofty and self-important to notice anyone of lesser rank, no matter the justification. Later, when Bean caught smallpox, he refused to allow the children into his sick room lest he expose them to the disease. They threw themselves into retrieving the painting and cursed Faircliffe when Bean slowly slipped away without the safe return of their heirloom. Then or now, the Winchester family couldn't command a single second of the new Duke's time. She ground her teeth. According to the society papers, the Winchester children were nothing more than a dead baron's charity orphans, someone you might toss a coin to out of pity, but never deign to speak to on purpose. She didn't care what Faircliffe thought of her. Chloe was glad to be a Winchester. 
She wouldn't trade a single moment for the boring, buttoned-up life of the beau monde. Chloe was used to being invisible. It was her greatest talent, and often the reason for the success of their clandestine missions. It had begun as a game. When the six siblings were children, Bean taught them to play three impossible things to give them skills and confidence. They gathered information, breached barriers, and performed feats of daring. Later, their team became the specialists to turn to when the justice system failed those in need. The Winchesters snuck food and medicine into prisons, exposed workhouses and orphanages with draconian practices, tracked down libertines who despoiled for sport, rescued women and children from abusers, delivered aid and supplies to those who needed it most. Bean had taught them nothing was impossible. Everyone deserved their best life. Their missions gave them purpose and adventure. Chloe loved slipping about unseen, doing good works beneath people's noses. But being overlooked on purpose was one thing. Being dismissed out of cruelty was far worse. We no longer have to beg, Chloe announced. We can steal it back from Faircliff, just as his father did to us. Graham added another tea cake to his plate. How will we infiltrate the Duke's terraced fortress? That townhouse is as tightly locked down as his loftiness himself. Do we even know where he's keeping the painting? Chloe grinned at him. We don't have to. I know where it's going to be. He set down his cake. Where? How? She leaned back. I sometimes watch parliamentary proceedings from the peephole in the attic. Sometimes, Graham rolled his eyes. When have you missed one? And what does your obsession with politics have to do with getting put back? Well, if you would let me finish. Chloe pilfered her brother's tea cake and took a bite from the corner, chewing with exaggerated slowness before swallowing. As I was saying, today... Tommy disguised us as journalists, and we sneaked into the strangers' gallery, where we sat behind Mr. York. Wait, Graham interrupted, his brown eyes gleaming. Mr. York, the MP whose daughter is rumoured to have caught the Duke of Faircliffe's eye. It's more than a rumour, Chloe said sourly. We overheard Faircliffe say he intends to give Puck and family to Mr. York's daughter, Philippa, as a courting gift. Graham's face purpled. Give away our painting? That knave! It's not his to give! That's the bad news, Chloe agreed. She affected an innocent expression. The good news is that my Jane Brown alias has an invitation to Miss York's weekly ladies' reading circle. I met her when I was on that mission at the dreadful school for girls. Philippa was visiting with a charity group and... You know what? It doesn't matter. The important part is, I have access to the home where the painting will be. It's our chance. Her brother pinned her with his too perceptive gaze. You accidentally bumped into the Duke of Faircliffe's future intended and now have a standing invitation into her household. That's a bit of good fortune. Uh, yes. Chloe became suddenly enthralled by her tea. A very lucky, completely random coincidence.
It was definitely not because she read the same gossip columns as her brother and wanted to see for herself what kind of woman attracted the Duke of Faircliffe's attention. Chloe had passed by him any number of times, not that he noticed. He didn't even acknowledge her when she'd placed herself in his direct path to demand the return of her family portrait. Barely a syllable had escaped her lips before he strode right past her towards something or someone he actually cared about. Blaggard. Now that we know when and where to act, we can play the game and get the painting. Chloe counted the impossible things on her fingers. First, ingratiate myself with the reading circle. Achieved. Second, retrieve Puck and family once Faircliff delivers it. Third, replace it with a forgery so no one suspects a thing. It all happens on Thursday. Graham frowned. Why would Faircliff wish to interrupt a reading circle? He doesn't know he's going to, Chloe smirked. The Yorks are surprisingly crafty. Even a stiff, scowling duke like Faircliff is a catch worth bragging about, Tommy explained. Mrs. York will want witnesses. We don't want witnesses, Graham pointed out. Wouldn't it be safer to bump into Faircliff on the street and accidentally swap his rolled canvas for ours? It would indeed. Chloe agreed. If Faircliff happened to stroll through Grosvenor Square with a rolled-up canvas, but the painting is framed, and the Duke will arrive in a carriage where the York butler will be watching. Graham lifted his tea. There aren't a lighter set of fingers in all of London, so I've no doubt you can nick the canvas, and we'll ask Marjorie to create the forgery. All six Winchester siblings were talented in their own ways. Marjorie was an extraordinary painter who could replicate any artwork to match the original. Chloe smiled. Marjorie finished ages ago. I just needed an opportunity to exchange canvases and some way to smuggle it out without anyone noticing. She swapped Graham's spoon with Tommy's fork as she thought. Coins and keys were easy objects to palm but a rolled-up canvas was much too big. Could you strap a tube to your leg? Tommy asked. Perhaps if I walked very carefully, Chloe mused, then shook her head. I would have to lift up my skirts to strap on the tube, and being caught like that would be worse. What I need is... Kittens! Their rugged elder brother Jacob strolled into the planning parlour with a lopsided basket in his strong arms. Most ladies love kittens almost as much as a good book. If you were showing off a new pet, Chloe tensed. Although hints of fur clung to Jacob's ripped and patched waistcoat, she'd learned to be wary. The last time her brother had entered a room with a basket, he was trying his hand at snake charming. If she hadn't been wearing her sturdiest boots, do you really have a kitten in there? Ferrets, he admitted, his dark brown eyes sparkling. But I have the perfect solution out in the barn. Tiglet is the best of all the messenger kittens. Messenger? Kittens? she echoed faintly. Like pigeons, but terrestrial, Jacob explained earnestly. More fur, less filth. The perfect cover, 
He can find his way home from anywhere. He'll be a splendid distraction, because where there's chaos, there's opportunity, Tommy finished, eyes gleaming. Chloe held up a finger. First rule of three impossible things, no plan without a contingency. Graham brightened. May I suggest? Your acrobatic skills are awe-inspiring, brother, but unnecessary in this instance. Graham's shoulders caved. When will it be my turn? Whilst I don't anticipate the need for trick riding on the back of a racing stallion, Chloe assured him, a driver would not be amiss, just in case I must flee in too much haste to flag down a hackney. No hack required, Graham straightened. We can't risk one of our carriages being recognised, so I'll drive a substitute that cannot be traced to the family. Tommy cocked her head. If there is a queue of carriages awaiting their literary-minded mistresses, how will Chloe know which coach is the right one? Mine will have red curtains and a conspicuously displayed glove for good measure. Graham's eyes lit up. Better yet, I will not only be the first carriage you come to, I'll be in the coachman's perch. You shan't miss me. No plan without a contingency. Jacob's curly black hair dipped as he peeked into the basket of ferrets. What if the York staff insist you move the carriage? Tommy clapped her hands. Elizabeth will distract them. When Elizabeth threw her voice, no one could tell where it was coming from. Their sister could emulate an entire crowd of distractions. She was also handy with a sword stick. Either skill would do the trick. Graham turned to Chloe, his eyes serious. If we get separated for any reason, go somewhere safe. I'll find you. She grinned back at him, exhilarated by the upcoming adventure. Huck was finally coming home. The reading circle will have a wonderful afternoon. Other than a wee interlude with Tiglet, the most memorable event will be Miss York charming the Duke of Haughtiness. Graham lifted a broadsheet. Their alliance will be the talk of the scandal columns. No one will remember anything else, which is too bad, because I rather enjoy their wild conjecture about us. One of my favourite columns claims such a large, isolated house could contain dozens of them. Chloe wrinkled her nose. Those gossips make us sound like bats. I like bats. Jacob scratched beneath the chin of one of the ferrets. Bats are fascinating. They have navels like humans and clean themselves like cats. I have 13 of them out in the barn. Please keep them there, Tommy murmured. Or give them to his iciness, Chloe suggested. Faircliff deserves as much. Graham moved the broadsheets in search of his spoon. No doubt the Duke's interest in Philippa York is monetary. Although she has no title, she does possess the largest dowry on the marriage mart. I've been keeping a tally. Poor Philippa. Tommy's mouth tightened. She deserves better. Chloe agreed. Faircliff single-handedly lowered the temperature in every room he entered. The man was all sharp cheekbones and cutting remarks. That is, to everyone but her. 
She was invisible when right in front of him, even when she was trying to be seen. Graham made a face. Can you imagine being wed to that block of ice? Chloe pushed her teacup away. I cannot fathom a worse fate. Chapter Two Lawrence Gosling, 8th Duke of Faircliffe, was on the verge of achieving what had once seemed impossible, replenishing the dukedom's empty coffers and restoring its tattered reputation. His father had lived a charmed life on credit he had been unable to repay, and now, with the failure of their country estate's crops, the situation was becoming dire. If Lawrence did not secure a bride with a significant dowry before the end of the season, he would have to send the last of his loyal servants to the streets. He would not repay them so shabbily. Lawrence leaned forward in his rented coach and opened the curtain to be able to address his driver. As with all of his father's grievous missteps, each of Lawrence's attempts to restore respect and prosperity had been won at great personal cost. The sacrifice was worth it. Lawrence's reputation was spotless, his performance in Parliament impeccable. This season, marriage-minded mamas would have him at the top of their lists. For as long as Lawrence lived, the Gosling name and Faircliffe title would never again be spoken with derision. No heir of his would be dismissed forced to shoulder ridicule and isolation. Of course, that was because no one realised his shiny reputation hid a very empty pocketbook. The dukedom didn't need a dowry. The dukedom needed the dowry to end all dowries. A sum so staggering, Lawrence could restore the half-abandoned, entailed country estate repay the last of his father's debts and have a respectable chunk left over to invest in a stable future. The dukedom needed Miss Philippa York. The terrace house at the corner, Lawrence instructed the driver, the one with yellow rose bushes. As you please, your grace. Using a coach to travel from one end of Grosvenor Square to the other was a shameless display of pretension and excess and the reason Miss York's parents looked favourably on a courtship between Lawrence and their daughter. Although he'd sold his last remaining carriage that morning, right down to his prized greys, Lawrence had rented this hack to keep up appearances. Mr York was one of the most powerful MPs in the House of Commons. Mrs York was bosom friends with a patroness of Almack's. They had wealth, status, Everything they could ever want, except a title. After the wedding, the York's daughter would be a duchess, their grandson a future duke. To them, such a jaw-dropping coup would be more than worth any dowry required. For him, it meant a new leaf. The Earl of Sotheby was seeking partners for an investment opportunity with very attractive interest rates, if... Lawrence came up with his portion before the Earl quit London at the end of the season. It was not a flashy wager, like the sort his father had made at his gentlemen's clubs, but the steady interest and future profit would provide a strong foundation for years to come. To Lawrence, marriage to respectable Miss York meant far more than financial stability.
His children could be children without fear of mockery or poverty. It would give his sons and daughters the chance, no, the right to be happy. Everyone deserved as much, including his new bride. Lawrence could not afford to woo Miss York for an entire season, but he could give her a week or two to get to know him before the betrothal. He reached for the framed canvas on the seat opposite. Once the traffic clears, I'll alight at the last house. I shan't be more than half an hour. But the carriages crowding the York's side of the square did not move. The queue appeared to be idly awaiting passengers. One of the York's neighbours must be hosting a tea. He grimaced. Lawrence hated tea. He would rather drink water from the Thames. Stop here, he reached for the door. Find your way to the front of the queue so I know where to find you when I return. The driver nodded and allowed the curtain to fall closed. Despite residing on opposite sides of Grosvenor Square, this was Lawrence's first call at the York residence. The warm red brick and painted white columns of the impeccable terrace house were bright and clean. Every window glistened in the sunlight, reflecting the azure spring sky or the trim green grass in the square. Jaw clenched, he strode down the pavement toward their front walk as elegantly as one could with a heavy brown paper-wrapped framed painting clutched beneath one's arm. Lawrence could have brought his last remaining footman along to carry the painting, but he hoped a show of personal effort would add an extra touch of romance to his unusual gift. It was not what he would have picked, but the important thing was giving his future betrothed something she liked. The finality of marriage prickled his skin with equal parts nervousness and excitement. A fortnight from now, when the contract was signed, he and Miss York would be saddled with each other. His palms felt clammy. Was it foolish to hope their union might be a pleasant one? He drew himself taller. As with all duties, one did as one must. The door was answered as soon as he touched the knocker. Lawrence presented his card at once. Your grace, said the butler, do come in. Shall I ring for someone to take your package? I'll deliver it. Lawrence stepped over the threshold to wait for his hosts. He and Mr. York had met in the House of Commons and enjoyed spirited debates for most of a decade. Last year, after the premature death of Lawrence's father, he had moved from the House of Commons to the House of Lords. A partnership with Mr. York would ensure vital allies across the two houses. All he had to do was remain sparklingly unobjectionable until the bans were read. Once Miss York married him, her dowry would save the dukedom and secure a better future for his family and his tenants. The plan had to work. It was Lawrence's only shot. Mrs. York bounded up to him, her hands clasped to her chest as if physically restraining a squeal of excitement. Your grace, such a pleasure, I do say. The unmistakable sound of female voices trickled from an open door halfway down the corridor straight ahead. Lawrence's skin went cold. This was supposed to be a private meeting. He hated surprises and was inept at impromptu conversations. 
He excelled in Parliament because he prepared his speeches in advance, just as he had done for today's visit with Miss York and her parents. Interacting with an unexpected crowd would ensure he made a hash out of his well-rehearsed lines. He stepped no farther. Did I mistake the date? he inquired carefully. No, no, right on time as always, Mr. York strode up to join his wife. You're a man who cleaves to duty, a fine trait, I dare say. Very little in common with your father. Uh, thank you. I should hope I'm nothing like him. Quite right, quite right. Your parliamentary speeches could rival Fox and Pitt. Your father, on the other hand, rarely left his club or his cups. Indeed, there are many who say... Mr. York coughed and gave Lawrence a jovial clap on the shoulder. Tis no time for gossip, is it, my boy? Lawrence affected an affable smile. At least, he hoped that was what his face was doing. He was conscious every day that the gosling name teetered on the edge of respectability. Mr. York's unfinished intimation had been clear. There were still those who said Faircliff Dukes were a blight on society. Duke or not, nothing was certain until the contract was signed. It is our honour, your grace, Mrs. York gushed as she fluttered her hands in excitement and impatience. Is that the special gift for Philippa? Come, you must present it to her at once. I admit I can't fathom what beauty she sees in that painting, Mr. York murmured. Lawrence held the frame a little harder. Dancing hobgoblins were an unusual subject. He did not understand why anyone would want it. What if, upon second inspection, the young lady realised her error in having expressed admiration for such questionable art, and laughed in his face when he presented it as a gift. Being able to give an item he already possessed had seemed like serendipity. Now he feared the omen might not be positive. His veins hummed with panic. It sounds as though Miss York is entertaining guests, he gripped the frame. I should return when I'm not interrupting. Stuff and nonsense, Mrs. York looped her hand about the crook of Lawrence's elbow and all but dragged him down the corridor. It's just a few of her blue-stocking friends. I'm certain they'll all find it amusing to see what you've brought, Philippa. Yes, exactly what he was afraid of. But there was no backing out now. His father's word wasn't worth the breath it floated on, but Lawrence had kept every vow for two and thirty years. Miss York liked the painting. He'd promised to give it to her. On this day, at this time. Nowhere to go but forward. Besides, a few blue stockings was hardly a lion's den. Was it? Philippa, my dear, look who's arrived, Mrs. York sang out as they entered a grand parlour. The room was enormous with seats for over two dozen guests and every chair was full. Lawrence could feel the weight of too many gazes landing on him at once. Half of them he did not recognise. Perhaps those were the blue stockings. But the other half were familiar faces from polite society. He swallowed hard. He didn't merely need to impress Miss York and her parents. He needed to charm an entire room.
If only influencing a parlour full of women were as easy as debating customs and excise reform at Westminster with a few hundred of his peers, quoting the latest committee findings, was unlikely to gain him any points here. He wouldn't acknowledge any of them, Lawrence decided. The situation was too fraught, and the chance for error too high. Missteps, like smiling at or snubbing the wrong young lady. He would place all of his attention on Miss York. That could be interpreted as romantic, could it not? Here he was with a courting gift, a knight bearing a tapestry of dancing demons for his fair maiden. Miss York, for her part, was enshrouded in her usual yards of voluminous lace. Only her pink cheeks and dimpled hands protruded from the delicate froth, lending her the appearance of a life-sized doll. Her eternally blank expression made the resemblance uncanny. Miss York, Lawrence began, then paused. He could not kiss her hand with the painting in his arms, and setting it on the ground risked damage. Bowing would be just as unwieldy. He would have to skip the niceties and rush straight to the romance. I've brought you a humble token of my admiration. Oh, gasped one of her friends. What could it be? A painting my mother informed him I might enjoy, Miss York gestured toward a blank spot on the wall. She intends to put it there. So, she was not impressed with his courtship gift. Lawrence forced himself to smile anyway. Miss York didn't smile back. The rest of the room was alive with whispers. Is it a love match? Why else would he wed beneath him? My father is a Marquis. What? Did you think he was bringing the gift to you? Do you think she loves him? Who can ever tell what she's thinking? I cannot wait to see the artwork he brought her. The back of Lawrence's neck flushed with heat. Yes, Miss York was marrying him for his title. Yes, he needed her dowry. But that didn't have to be all they shared. Even a marriage of convenience could work with a modicum of effort. But first, he had to get rid of this bloody painting. Could someone ring for a pair of shears? He asked politely. Here, Mrs. York trilled. Two wigged footmen, identical in height and elegant livery, glided into the room and relieved Lawrence of the canvas. Now was his chance to kiss Miss York's hand. Before he could do so, a maid handed her a sharp pair of metal shears. Miss York rose to her feet in a rustle of lace. A wave of whispers once again rushed through the parlour. Lawrence risked a subtle glance over his shoulder. Every gaze was transfixed on Miss York. Except for one. One woman's dark brown eyes arrested him. She did not seem curious about the gift. Her disconcertingly intense expression was shrewd, as if she could see through the brown paper package, see through his meticulously tailored layers of fashionable apparel, see through him to the nervousness and desperation beneath but she did not look away. Her gaze only sharpened, as if she had stripped him bare and still wanted more. His throat grew dry. He tried to swallow. 
An odd prickling sensation travelled up his spine as though the tips of her fingers had brushed against his skin. He quickly turned back to Miss York. The delivery of the gift had stretched on long enough. If she didn't cut through the paper soon, Lawrence would rip it apart with his bare hands, make his bow and escape to his waiting carriage before he was forced to follow this performance with tea and small talk. If you'd be so kind, he murmured. Miss York sliced through the brown paper as though she had little interest in safekeeping the art beneath. The paper fell away. The painting was exposed. A gasp rippled through the crowd, whether at the romance of the gesture, or because the subject featured a family of mischievous sprites, Lawrence could not say. Thank you, Miss York said. You are most kind. Was she smitten? Bored? She did not appear to be upset or in any danger of swooning. He gave a gift. She received the gift. Fun. The back of his neck heated anew. He appreciated her extreme lack of drama, Lawrence told himself. After her dowry, her predictability was his favourite trait. A woman like Miss York would never muddy the Faircliff title with scandal. She was exactly what he needed. No scrapes, no surprises. Mrs. York burst into loud applause. Huzzah! Everyone in the room followed suit. Everyone, that was, except Miss York, and the oddly intense young woman with the mocking half-smile. Her gaze continued to track him, as though she could hear each overloud heartbeat and sense each shallow breath from across the room. He did not like the sensation at all. Despite the room full of strangers, her regard felt strangely intimate and far too perceptive. As soon as the painting is hung, Mrs. York chirped, we shall all remove to the dining room for a nice leisurely tea. Good God, anything but that. Besides his distaste for tea, Lawrence could not court anyone properly while dodging the unsettling gaze of the woman with the pretty brown eyes. Even now, he was thinking of her instead of concentrating on Miss York. It would not do. Once the painting was hung, Lawrence would bolt out the door and into the sanctity of his carriage. His driver had better be ready to fly. Chapter Three Chloe folded her hands in her lap and did her best not to glare a hole right through the handsome, haughty Duke of Faircliffe. All of this would have been much easier if Faircliffe would simply return the painting. But addressing his arrogance directly did not work. Chloe and her siblings had pleaded for months in countless letters sent to his home and dozens of humiliating attempts in person. His infuriating loftiness was far too superior to see reason, or commoners like the Winchester siblings. His frigid blue gaze looked right at Chloe and slid away just as quickly, having glimpsed nothing to attract his interest. How many times had she and Faircliffe crossed paths? Hyde Park, Berkeley Square, Westminster. Every disdainful glance in her direction was as indifferent as the last. She lifted her chin. Bean had taught her that. To the right person, she would be visible and memorable. 
Faircliffe was clearly the wrong person. Not that she wanted him to notice her, Chloe reminded herself. The continued success of Jane Brown hinged on her uncanny ability to be wholly unremarkable under any circumstances. She gripped the soft muslin of her skirt. Tommy might be an unparalleled genius with disguises, but Chloe needn't do anything at all to blend in and be forgettable. She possessed one of those faces that was at once familiar yet too ordinary to pick out from a crowd. She was neither tall nor short, ugly nor pretty. Nothing about her stood out. Her skin wasn't palest alabaster like Philippa York's or golden bronze like her brother Graham's. She was not thin and willowy like Tommy or pleasingly plump like Elizabeth. Her limp brown hair wasn't spun flax like Marjorie's, or blessed with glossy black curls like Jacob's. Chloe was neutral and dull, with nary even a freckle to add a spot of interest. She was just... there, like a dust mote in a shaft of light. Her perpetual insignificance had helped her through scrape after scrape, Chloe would never admit how much she wished, just once, to see a flicker of recognition reflected back at her. Not that her expectations of Faircliffe were high. What type of conceited, cold-hearted knave blithely gave away a painting he did not own as a courtship gift? A villain like that could not be trusted or reasoned with. He'd had his chance to deal honourably. Chloe wouldn't beg him for the painting even if she could. At this point, the duplicitous, arrogant blackguard deserved to have it whisked out of his hands. She forced her tense fingers to unclench and folded them in her lap. Soon. Thank you ever so much for your charming gift, Mrs. York cooed loud enough for the entire party to hear, and likely the neighbours as well. Philippa is overjoyed. Philippa did not appear to be overjoyed, or even middling-level joyful. She bore the same, I am here because I must be expression she wore at every social function, save the brief occasions when her mother left her side and the reading circle could actually talk about books. Chloe imagined her far more interested in the Duke's famed library than in the man himself. Not that Faircliffe seemed particularly infatuated. A man in love would have dreamed up a gift better suited to his bride. My gratitude, Philippa murmured. The Duke looked self-congratulatory. My pleasure. Chloe glared at him on behalf of women everywhere who longed for more than token gestures of false affection. But Faircliffe's kind didn't waste time on matters of the heart. Lords and ladies, or those who aspired to become them, selected their unions with cold practicality. Their minds were muddied not with emotion, but with visions of titles and dowries and estates and social connections. Chloe was delighted not to belong to a world like that. Mrs. York clapped her hands together. And now, a celebratory tea! The Duke's face displayed a comical look of alarm. I don't think... You must join us, 
Mrs. York's hands flapped like a frightened bird's. The ladies were about to have oat cakes and cucumber sandwiches. We were about to discuss epistolary structure in 18th century French novels, Philippa murmured. I never meant to interrupt, Faircliffe said with haste. I, I mustn't stay. And in fact, nonsense, come, come, all of you. Mrs. York waved her arms about the room, driving her guests into the dining room like a shepherd herding sheep. Chloe and Faircliffe were both caught in the flow. Once they passed through the doorway, however, Chloe stepped to one side. She could not take a seat at the table or she would be stuck there for the next hour. While everyone else was occupied, this was her chance to liberate her beloved Puck. But first, she needed an excuse to disappear. An adorable, furry reason. She released Tiglet from the large wicker basket. The calico kitten darted between boots and beneath petticoats with a formidable Rawr! Mrs. York gave a dramatic shriek in response. Tiglet scaled several curtains in search of an open window before darting out of the dining room and flying off down the corridor as though his tail were afire. Chloe gasped as if shocked that her homing kitten was attempting to dash home. How embarrassing! I'll run and find the naughty little scamp at once. Please don't wait for me. Philippa glanced up from her place at the table. I could help. Sit down, her mother hissed. The Duke is here. Philippa sighed. We could at least ring for a maid or a footman. It's really no trouble, Chloe assured her. Please serve the tea. With a meaningful glance to Mrs. York, Chloe made several unsubtle tilts of her head toward the Duke of Faircliffe who was tarrying noticeably, as if reluctant to take his place at the table. Oh, Mrs. York said loudly, you're absolutely right. Go on, dear, take your time. Over here, your grace, come and sit by Philippa. We've saved you the best seat. Have you met the others? Philippa gestured at each young lady as she took a chair at the table. To my left is... Chloe slipped from the room at the sound of Mrs. York chastising her daughter for performing introductions out of the order of precedence. Chloe could be gone an hour before anyone would notice. She wouldn't need but five minutes. With her basket hanging from her arm, she ducked into the parlour and closed the door behind her. A broken hairpin in the keyhole would not only prevent anyone from entering behind her, but would also make it obvious a crime was underway. She would simply work fast. There was no sense looking for the kitten. Strands of calico fur and unfortunate paw prints on a velvet curtain indicated Tiglet had already found an open window and was well on his way home. Chloe hurried to lift her family painting from the wall and carried it behind a chinoiserie folding screen in the corner. Cutting the canvas free was not an option. The replacement must look identical to the original, and besides, she would never damage an object that meant this much. Quickly, she lay the frame face down and removed her tools from the basket. Marjorie had drilled Chloe on mounting and unmounting canvases until her fingers were calloused and she could perform the manoeuvre in her sleep. Up came the grips, off came the backing, out came Puck and family. She rolled it into a scroll the size of her forearm, and tucked it into the basket before stretching the forgery over the wooden frame. This was the tricky part. 
there was no way to attach the painting without hammering the grips in place. She must do so in silence. If she placed only one grip on each side and lined each one perfectly with the holes it had come from, there! She hurriedly returned it to the wall. As long as it stayed there, no one would notice the imperfect craftsmanship. And if one day someone did notice, well, that was none of Chloe's concern. Faircliff would be the one who had to explain the shoddy frame. She did not feel sorry for him at all. This was not his painting to give away. For that alone she could never forgive him. She ran to open the parlour door before anyone noticed it had been shut and strode past the dining room to the front door without taking her leave from the guests. By now, Faircliff and Philippa were exchanging romantic words with all of the other ladies hanging on every utterance. Would anyone realise she had failed to return? Doubtful. If anything, the ladies would assume Jane Brown had slunk off in mortification. Her throat prickled. She would never know what the other ladies thought of the current novel. But Chloe didn't need reading circles. She was a Winchester. They had each other, which was more than enough. Keeping her face down, she headed along the front walk toward the first carriage in the queue. Only when she glimpsed red curtains and a pair of leather gloves on the box did she lift her head toward the driver's perch. It was empty. Her lungs caught. Where was Graham? Distant shouts reached her ears and her tight muscles relaxed. Something unexpected must have occurred, and her sibling's planned distraction was in progress. This was her cue to flee. Chloe pushed the basket onto the perch, unhooked the carriage from its post, and leapt onto the coachman's seat. Female drivers weren't unheard of, but all the same, she was glad she never went outside without garbing herself in the plainest, dullest, dowdiest clothing in her wardrobe. No one who glanced her way would bother looking for long. She set the horses on a swift path out of Mayfair. Only when Grosvenor Square was no longer visible behind her did she allow herself a small smile of victory. Their cherished family portrait was coming home. Once she walked in that door with their painting held high, did we escape? Came a low, velvet voice from within the carriage. Chloe's skin went cold. Who was that? Graham wouldn't be hiding in the back of the carriage. A stranger was in the coach. She twisted about and wrenched the privacy curtain to one side. A handsome face with soft brown hair and sculpted cheekbones stared back at her, glacial blue eyes wide with surprise. Faircliff? she blurted in disbelief. Miss, uh, you, he spluttered when he found his voice. What the devil are you doing driving my carriage? <laughs>